1: In aesthetic theory, Theodore Adorno remarks, quote, "Art is the social at antithesis of society, not directly deducible from it. The constitution of art's sphere corresponds to the constitution of an inward space of men as a space of their representation." Unquote. In the past few years, autonomy has taken a greater significance as the contemporary art has been made more and more subservient to the market. And the neoliberal cultural establishment. Thus, the return to autonomy presents an attempt to recover ways to restore emancipatory potential of art. My guest today, Grant Kester, however, argues that autonomy is deeply riddled with the contradictions, while he acknowledged a lengthy historical sway of the, this concept over the understanding of art and the shifting relationship between art and revolutionary praxis. In the sovereign self, aesthetic autonomy from enlightenment to the avant-garde published by Duke university press in 2023 Kisser traces autonomy from enlightenment to the historical avant-garde and the contemporary artistic practices and art criticism while exploring its inadequacies as well as its potential for liberatory politics in this book and companion book Beyond the Sovereign Self, aesthetic autonomy from of the avant-garde to the socially engaged art, Kester shows how an alternative theoretical paradigm embodied by socially engaged art can afford greater possibilities for critical practice. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Arts. I'm Kaver Rafi, and I'm excited to join Grant Kester to discuss his recent book, The Sovereign Self, uh, aesthetic autonomy from the Enlightenment to the Avant-Garde. Kisser is a professor of art history and the founding editor of Field, a journal of socially engaged art criticism. He is author of numerous books, including Art Activism and Oppositionality: Essays from After Image, 1998; Conversation Pieces: Community and Communication in Modern Art, 2004, and 2013. The One and Many Contemporary Collaborative Art in the Global Context, 2011, and uh, many more. Uh, his essays also have been published in several editorial volumes, Art in Theory, the Best in the World uh, An Anthology of Changing Ideas, 2020, in Companion to the Public Art, 2016, and uh, so many more others' uh, uh, work and publication. Hi, Grant. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi. Thank you so much, uh, Kaveh, for having me. It's a delight. I'm delighted to talk to you. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Probably our listeners are
1: familiar with your scholarship. But to set off the conversation, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you come to write this book, uh, The Sovereign Self?
2: Sure. Uh, You know, I've been um, writing... In one way or the other, about uh, art, contemporary art, but especially activists or socially engaged art practice for, for you know quite a long time back to the eighties, really. And so I've had a long term interest in the topic, obviously. <clears throat> and uh, I think the thing that led there's a couple of things that led to the most recent set of books uh, out, out of that longer commitment. And uh, it, it, one of those is. Uh, Gosh, if you go back to that, when I first started writing about activists, engaged art practices, what have you, in the 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, they were really very much tangential to mainstream art history, and criticism, and theory. Very few people writing about the work, and those that did were usually kind of dismissive. There were a handful of important critics, obviously, at least in the U.S. context. Examples might be you know, Lucy Lepard, people like that, that were real trailblazers. But the mainstream art world was, by and large, fairly indifferent to this kind of practice. Now, that started to change, I would say, over the last 20 years. And uh, there's probably a variety of reasons for that, uh, which we can maybe get into a little bit later. Uh, But um, you started to see more and more maybe traditional art critics writing about, directly or indirectly, writing about this kind of practice. And so uh, out of that, a kind of a discourse emerged, which was a critical discourse that said certain kinds of activist or engaged practices fail for these reasons. And in the second book, I, spe- I use Jacques Rossier as a kind of a test case of that. Like, what's the argument for why this can't, this work can't be art? What are the reasons for that? And so on. And it's usually, there's, a, there's an appeal to the aesthetic. And so. I realized there was a certain repetition or uniformity to the criticisms. They were usually criticisms of this practice that were structured around these oppositions, aesthetics versus ethics, uh, disruption versus uh, affirmative experience, uh, dissensus versus consensus, almost like it's an uh, there's an algorithm at work, <laughs> like our hermeneutic square, where you have to identify a binary and then situate what it is art in opposition to what is not art. And it had come to be, just in my experience, that was quite often these kind of activist practices that were being situated in the not art category. So that really led me and and to wonder what, one, why is that discursive structure so uniform across many different thinkers? I mean, you can see see it in Ranciere, you see a strong element of it in Adorno's work. And then the, re- the recent revival of interest in Adorno and a number of other contemporary figures. I said, what is, what is underneath that? So why is it so persistent in the way it's structured? And, and from my perspective, problematic uh, in certain ways. At any rate, I was interested in, I guess, excavating the genealogy in Foucaultian terms. Of this discursive structure. And so a lot of the work in this book is devoted to trying to reveal the pre-conscious horizons of normative models of the aesthetic in contemporary art theory. And that's linked to the second reason, I, I suppose, for writing the books, which is I had had a long-standing interest in the aesthetic. And, and the aesthetic, uh Not as a placeholder for beauty or the conventional work of art, but the aesthetic is a fully complex political discourse, which is how it originates, right? The aesthetic begins as the science of sensory knowledge in the Enlightenment, in the the European tradition, and only later gets associated so single-mindedly with art. And I felt that there was something uh, in that history that, was, that, that I wanted to excavate and salvage and draw attention to that often gets left out of these discussions. Uh, so, so that was the, the other piece of it. And, and in particular, it has to do with it, it, the nature of the political, the relation between the one and the many, the uh, self and other the role of the body and embodied it as a form of political knowledge uh, and so on. And I relate to that, I was interested in this idea and I had this intuition that there was another version of modernity that one could potentially construct. And it would be a more capacious modernity that could deal with events and practices outside the Eurocentric canon And so I was also looking for a mechanism. That's why I spend time in the first section of the book talking about the ambivalent relationship of the Enlightenment to colonialism, because on the one hand, the Enlightenment is the very engine of colonial expropriation. On the other hand, there's this robust anti-colonialist tradition, Herder and Diderot and so on, utterly denouncing it they thought, what a fascinating point of tension. There's something there that I wanted to get at. And so that was the other piece of it, was to dig down a little more deeply into that history and and hopefully find some, informa- uh, some insights that would enlighten, provide some enlightenment or, or deeper understanding of contemporary practices as well.
1: Yeah, that's uh, something that I really like about this book. I mean, the book uh, sits this complex, right? Uh, and it's it's not just one-way unilateral narrative of you know enlightenment, uh either as good or bad, uh as colonizer or you know emancipatory. It's more deeper complexities in different uh aspects, which very much I think uh helpful uh to understand also the term uh, autonomy not just in the Western context. I think that's also useful to think about this, this concept in other contexts, non-Western contexts as well. And this deep tie with polity, uh which is uh, very much fascinating in this sense. My question is uh, very much regarding the autonomy and how this concept uh, came up about to be and conceptualized in, in enlightenment. You know, when we're speaking of autonomy, uh, the first thing comes to mind is individual autonomy and the sovereignty over mm-hmm. one's self and action beyond external coercion, or as uh, uh, Emmanuel Kant would, you know, uh, put one's release from their self incurred tutelage. Uh, yet the focus of the book, as you mentioned, is aesthetic autonomy, uh, which is. To some extent, you can uh, theorize as is grounded on the distinction between art and life, or you know, politics and society. In the book, you make this connection between these notions of autonomy and how they are inherently linked. Maybe you can tell us more about uh, these connections, uh, you know, since the enlightenment.
2: Sure. Um, you mean around the notion of autonomy specifically? Yeah, I'm thinking that uh, you know, as you
1: discuss in a, uh, you know introduction and the chapters, early chapters in a bro- uh, broader sense.
2: Yeah, that, so uh, you know, as I as I point out in the book, it's not something I figured out. I've learned it from people who are phlo- write on the history of philosophy. The the concept of autonomy uh, that that informs forms the aesthetic, begins in, in political discourse in the natural law tradition, and Fufendorf and Grotius, and a whole number of writers uh, active in the period of the of kind of early modernism in Europe. And uh, I mean, it's originally used it in that tradition. It goes back to ancient Greece, but then it gets revived in the 1500s. But it gets revived at this moment, right? Of of uh, of incipient. Uh, desacralization and gr- growing erosion, not sl- sl- gradual, but but, but exists, a kind of a grueling erosion of absolutism. Of course, it's de- temporally differential. It erodes more quickly in some places than others, but it's part of an evolving discourse. of ch- ch- It's intended to challenge absolutist forms of political and religious and cultural authority. Uh, you know, the great chain of being. Uh, You have to obey the king because the king is the second in line to God's authority. And then that line of transmission of authority extends all the way down to families and husbands over wives and over children. And even in the Latin version of the great chain of being, it's like there's a hierarchy of plants versus rocks and fire. Like this whole fixed structure that says you have to do what you're told by the one person that exists in a higher position. And you that starts to come under your uh, critique and attack. And so autonomy, right? It's literally autonomos. I mean, nomos is like comparable, I think about the word norms or conventions. So auto means you give them to yourself. I'm going to give my, instead of the rules being dictated to me by the king or by the church, I'm going to come up with my own norms, my own rules, my own conventions. So that's the appeal for freedom. That's the desire to, declare one's personal independence and freedom from an external compulsion or coercion. Uh, But of course, the challenge is that norms or conventions are in a social system are social. That is, it doesn't work for me to say my norm is I don't have to stop at stop signs. I'm just decided now I'm going to give myself that law, right? Or we're going to have accidents. So how do we negotiate the relationship between autonomy as a kind of a a very powerful assertion of individual independence? No one can tell me what to do. From the fact that a society populated by people, all of whom believe that, could potentially descend into chaos. And this is especially pronounced because part of the impetus for the emergence of political autonomy is precisely the The early stage uh, rise of notions of possessive individualism and mercantile capitalism and bourgeois uh, kind of a bourgeoisie, and it's very early stages, right? Pushing back against absolutist authority, and what comes along with that is a is a foregrounding of radical individual freedom. So, so you you have a version of autonomy that is freedom from external coercion. But then the uh, flip side is uh, freedom uh, power over external others. And so that's, that tension is kind of baked into uh, a notion of autonomy, uh, of how do we reconcile the relationship between uh, a desire to be free from external control versus the, the fact that the, the solution to it that we're offered is to ex- is to embrace a form of being that precisely exists to control others, which is the ethos of possessive individualism that then it becomes a rationalization for the colonial exploitation of the for by Europe of the rest of the world, that we are entitled to take what you have, this whole kind of form of the self. So that, that those tensions are are kind of built into an early stage at the same time. The, once this migrates into the aesthetic, there's a shift. So if the if the contradiction is between a notion of uh, a notion of the self that is either protected and safe and independent or a self that exploits and, 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 and commodifies the external world literally to the level of possessing the bodies of others, how do we construct a society in that in those terms? Because the aesthetic is at the same time uh, based on a fairly powerful critique, of the negative or deleterious effects of capitalism. Like, look at uh, Kant. Why does Kant focus so much on disinterest in the critique of judgment? Because he's very aware, he writes about this, the kind of damaging effects of self-interest. Schiller does it. The entire German romantic tradition is full of philosophers talking about how destructive it is to be selfish and self-interested and to exploit others. And so the aesthetic becomes a kind of a a space that gets carved out of existing political discourse in which a critique of capitalism in a kind of a basic level starts to be articulated. So now you have this really interesting situation. Okay, so we have a new version of the self, the autonomous self, who's also the sovereign self, but that's going to produce certain contradictions and tensions. Uh, How do we resolve those? What? How do we move towards a society that will not descend into chaos well we need to do something to transform human consciousness so that we are less prone to this kind of possessive individualistic behavior and more open to a, 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 a dialogical notion of the salt that is formed with the interstices itself and other and doesn't simply see others as enemies to be destroyed, or, or commodities to be consumed, or what have you. And so the study becomes, in a sense, the answer to that question. It provides the hope that we have the ability to both be completely free, but to self-regulate in such a way that as we're exercising our complete freedom, without any external coercion, we're nonetheless magically going to not impinge on someone else's absolute freedom. That's the kind of hope that the aesthetic offers. So um so it it's uh it, but then then there's a the the structure that the aesthetics uh, is going to take at that point gets complicated because if you look at uh if you look at Kant and the early notion of the aesthetic and the in the critique of judgment, uh Kant will say um uh, uh, aesthetic well let me b- back up a little bit and lead into that because you ask about some of the thinkers. All right. So that's the, the kind of job, in a way, of the aesthetic in the in the uh, in the Enlightenment is to reconcile the the tension between these versions of autonomy as individualism and autonomy as sovereignty over others. So when that discursive system kind of migrates into the aesthetic, it brings it carries along with it this kind of incipient critique of the conditions that encourage that kind of self, this appropriated notion of the self. And so how are we going to change people's consciousness to make people less prone to the deleterious effects of in possessing individualism? Uh, aesthetic experience will do that. And for Kant, does it doesn't what it calls the harmony of the faculties. And the harmony of the faculties works this way. Um, uh, typically, when we experience something in the world, uh, in the first critique, uh, we see a thing, through our senses. And our senses provide that information through the imagination. The imagination bundles up all those sensory perceptions into what he calls a manifold. And then that manifold is, is, is given over to the understanding. And the understanding has concepts. Uh, a priori, not entirely a priori, but let's say socially conventional concepts. Oh, I see a, an animal. And then I have the concept dog. If I project dog onto that animal, know that's what that is. So I've, I've kind of shoehorned the kind of complexity of, of the lived world into a concept in order to get gain knowledge over it. That's how scientific knowledge evolves, is the, the, this increasingly complex ensemble of concepts that we start to develop in our minds. And so we see things, and over time, they develop more and more uh, complex understanding of the world conceptually. Uh, but that involves a kind of legislation in which the imagination is, it literally we use that term, um, the imagination is legislated by the understanding, which is a higher power. So we have another hierarchy. We have reason at the very top, then the understanding and the imagination. Imagination is closest to sensory embodiment closest to our senses, closest to the world. The further away we get from the world into the realm of reason, the more metaphysical, the more transcendental, and so on, experience becomes. And so what happens in a normal encounter is you project all these concepts onto a thing and gain knowledge that gives you an operational ability to manipulate things in the world. That's the first critique, in a way. That's the basis of scientific knowledge. But in the aesthetic experience, you're not looking at things in the world so you can extract value cognitively or economically. You're just looking at them as, as things that you don't, You just, just opportunities for your minds to be at play. So works of art are good examples, although Kant doesn't talk much about works of art. He talks more about like landscape gardens and seashells. But so in an aesthetic encounter, instead of the imagination being in a way controlled by the understanding with its laws, its norms, and say, okay, okay, understanding, I'll project that that concept. The imagination effortlessly of its own accord packages up sensory impressions in a conceptually coherent manner so that the it just hands them over to the understanding. Without the understanding, you have to do the heavy lifting of projecting concepts. What that means is the individual self, at the most basic level of who we are, at the level of the body and the senses, is, 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 uh, has a predisposition to subordinate it subordinate itself to a higher law, the, in this case, the law of the understanding. And so that reassures us that at the most basic level of, our, our, of ourselves, we will obey an external law of some kind. We don't have to be coerced. We'll do it naturally. In some way. And so that's what bridges the first and second critique. That's why the third critique is the bridge, because the first critique, you can make a really good argument about why, you know, you need to use concepts to gain knowledge of the world to build a dam and everything else. Second critique is about uh, practical reasoning and morality and so on. And that's the reason not understanding reason-giving moral law to the self. But why would the self obey the reason? The reasons I don't care, reason says I should follow the categorical imperative and not hurt other people. I don't care. What's my motivation? Well, third critique reassures us that we do have that motivation to be good selves, but it is at this stage of humanity not fully developed. So it it can't, we can't yet risk Trying to actualize, for example, social and political transformation, because we are still imperfect. We have an an innate capacity, but it is as yet undeveloped in most people. And the job of the aesthetic, of aesthetic encounters, is to coax at at us, to nurture nurture it, to build it up in us, so that we become more uh, open, empathetic human beings. That's its job. But for it to perform that job, it can have no direct practical uh, 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 connection to things in the world, practical ex- experiences in the world. It has to be fully at the level of the individual contemplating the cognitive operations of their own mind. And from that, intuiting what's called the sensus communis. And the sensus communis, or, or in common sense, is our intuition that we're all connected to other people, that other people are not our enemies or, or commodities or what have you. That's what we intuit when we have an aesthetic encounter. So um, anyway, that's a long, <laughs> that's a longer answer than you might've needed, but um, I can go on if you want about Schiller or Hegel or what have you, but that's kind of the, fa- that's the foundation stone, if you will, I think. Yeah, I think
1: that's great. Uh, actually, that also ser- serves as this, uh, perhaps the platform to think these concepts, uh, specifically like, I, I, it's interesting to me uh, regarding the overall Kant's project uh, he, he tries to, to do, I mean, not go into the politics. He's, his theory is not much, he, you know, his books, morality, you know, uh, epistemology, but not much about political thinking. Although there are you know, short essays about peace and others, but he tries perhaps to, uh, say, circumvent or, 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 or find maybe the, create the shortcut, uh, between this perhaps the tension specifically, as you mentioned, like, uh, this, uh, during this, uh, 18th, 19th century, maybe, uh, as we see this kind of the tension between individual and state, uh, to some extent, which then, uh, we can see in the work of Schiller, as you mentioned about the aesthetic state and how he tries to reconcile this tension, uh, and then uh, also Hegel uh, with this uh, ethic life and this whole idea about it, you know, from the individual rights, the property rights to the morality and ethical life. or maybe the reverse because it's all grounded on the idea of the ethical life. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's very interesting and shows us this pair of these projects. Uh, to, to what extent aesthetics actually in this political thing, Perhaps the, I, I would say this liberal thinking about this, you know, uh, connection between the individual and the state, um, uh, and, uh, the, the Kant's, uh, you know, solution to, to this, this seems that, yeah, he tries to, yeah, he tries to, to find a way to perhaps harmonize in, in a way that this whole Rousseauian thinking that, you know, your inner morale, you know, ought to be kind of synced with this general will and this kind of making that connection to Esthetic. And it seems that Esthetic is at the core. Um, so maybe, uh, we can, um, also, you know, talk a little bit about how then this idea was picked by the artists. And it seems that there is a role of artists, at least there is one correlate to the Kantian thinking is artists as a form giver, right? Like. There is kind of playing this mediation role, perhaps. Uh, that's one. that might be one look. Uh, although there, there, can be other, you know, way to uh, go from there. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious. What do you think about the entire artistic uh, movement? You know, after 19th century onward, thinking about the aesthetic and seems very much informed by some of these discussions.
2: Yeah. Um... So let me see if I can sketch a little bit of this out. And and one place to start the segue is with is really with Schiller and Hegel because, you know, Kant was um, uh, relatively sanguine about the possibilities of enlightenment and, eman- and emancipation, and he was not a you know yeah, famously says argue as much as you want about whatever you want, but obey. But that's because of Frederick the Great and so on. But you know, he advocated for reforms in education and so on. Uh, so he felt that, I think you could argue, I mean, I'm not an expert by any extent, but I think he could argue, based on his writings, that he was uh, he was an advocate for a gradual enlightenment of society that would proceed on many fronts. He talks about uh, Buch und Geld, a commerce, uh, uh, and learned, uh, and so on. What shifts when you get to Schiller is the incipience of that moment, and and so with Schiller, it's I think uh, it was my my argument in the book, as others have made, is that it's 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 two things: it's his experience of the French Revolution and also his declining fortunes as a poet and playwright that kind of turn him against the idea of political change here and now. As he says any form of political any political reform is untimely. That is premature until we heal the divide within humanity. Um, that's in the letters on aesthetic education of man. And so it's at that point that you have the shift where it's not just the general enlightenment or whatever, we become more human and more openly present, but it's art and art alone that can produce this change, that can reprogram. It's almost like the human self needs a new operating system, and the only thing we can provide it is going to be the experience, aesthetic experience of artwork. So that's a big shift into the exclusivity of art as the privilege and the artist as the privileged carrier, almost as a prefiguration of the kind of self everybody else needs to become to have a humane society, so that we can kind of look upon art, the, the work of art. The artist and kind of see almost in an Hegelian sense, like the externalized ideal form of consciousness that we ourselves should one day uh, aspire to to have a just society, but but that we cannot try to change society here and now until enough people have gone through an aesthetic education via exposure to plays and poems and so on, and the book in what is emerging as the bourgeois public sphere of galleries and publishing houses and so on, uh, rising letter- levels of literacy in Germany and so on. And this is also the other piece that comes out of Schiller is this apophatic or uh, definition by negation of art as opposed to early forms of popular culture, like in the Sturm und Drang movement, and uh, talk about uh, Berger and a number of these figures who are talking about the poet oh, should go down to the bleaching yard and talk to the people and speak their vernacular language. And, and Schuller's completely opposed to that. It says that there's nothing to be learned. And it's, it's you know, the, the, they're your inferiors. Their job is to learn from you. So we start to have now this fairly significant reassertion of a cognitive hierarchy between the artist, artist is what Adorno calls a deputy, and the work of art. And the large, broad population. Now, Hegel picks up on that as well. Early Hegel um, is fair, again fairly supportive of, of a kind of a de-transcendentalizing of authority. That's what Abrahams calls it, in which we start to understand that our true nature is to be is to be defined in in terms of our relation, open relationship to others, but that. Uh, that, that early stage, he's in his Yenu period writings, and that starts to shift in his later work. And by the time you get to philosophy of right, he's kind of pretty critical of the public. And the public is a formless mass that you can't rely on. And so, so the realization of Geist or spirit of the absolute is really just meant to be our realization that we're connected to each other that we're we're human together. It's such a simple thing, and society's slowly been evolving towards that. That's this whole developmentalism, isn't it, Uh, in terms of art. But that shifts again, and now you have a retranscendentalization in which the monarch now becomes the agent that reconciles contradictions in society as opposed to what he seemed to be heading towards, which was a system in which the people would govern themselves, would be fully autonomous. They're not quite ready for freedom yet. And that deferral, not quite ready for freedom yet, that's going to be a a key uh, concept right through the 19th century. And And it also migrates, as I argue, into certain forms of political theory. And we start to see this jump that I describe, in which the party, the Communist Party, typically takes on this a similar role. The the you know, there's this Sartre quote I mentioned in the book, or where it's from the 1950s, where he says, you know, uh, people say the the working class doesn't want the party. Well, who cares what the working class wants? Without the party, they're particles of dust. So this, I. I I sketch it out through a kind of a schema, right? Then there's two two areas. The first area has to do with the ontology so in a way of art, and that's the this, it's art and art alone that can preserve this consciousness. Now, for Schiller, it's a consciousness of our connectedness to others. For the avant garde or vanguard tradition, it's going to be a revolutionary consciousness, but it's the same basic principle in terms of the social architecture. It's quite similar. In the, in the singularity of the artist and um, the second piece of that prematurity and practice we cannot yet be trusted to actually try to go into the world and and realize these utopian possibilities that the aesthetic discloses and then the second piece is epistemological and that is um you know, the aesthetic experience can only unfold in the realm of semblance alone. It can't be something we do out in the quote-unquote world, but it has to remain locked within the kind of institutional sphere of the bourgeois art world. But at any rate, these concepts might <laughs> are what migrate, I argue, right, into the 19th century and get taken up in a number of different avant-garde movements and then kind of segue to some extent into vanguard political theory. So that's a, a very rough sketching out of the of the argument at least
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think, uh, as you mentioned, this cognitive hierarchy very much also this framework seems very much rely this cognitive side rather than the embodiment. And also, related to this, as you mentioned about displacement and deferral, I think this seems that both as a strategy and also as a uh, perhaps a conceptual notion to reconcile some of these contradictions. Uh, uh, but they, in in some way, they generate binary between the practice and uh, theory. Maybe we can tell us also more. Uh, you you mentioned uh, also this uh, the social context about the revolutions. Uh, just to just to briefly sketching, you know, this what's happened uh, from let's say the the revolution to Paris Commune, seems that Paris Commune also has this important impact in relation to how this artist and also the people thinking about this concept and then the Russian Revolution.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll do my best to do it in a way that it's a lot of information, but I'll do my best to kind of reduce it to the the main points. Look, one of the things that happens uh, when you, in the discourse to the aesthetic, uh, early on is a as I've already kind of alluded to as a is a hierarchy between the artist and the broader public and in that hierarchy the broader public I mean you see this in schiller schiller talks about the lower orders are driven by their base animal appetites <laughs> and the civilized classes are all up in their hands right so the play drive is supposed to reconcile we're divided we're supposed to ancient Greece everything was a perfect hybrid now we're all divided so the aesthetic experience will kind of heal that division. But already we see the hierarchy and in, in, in that hierarchy, uh, mind and body uh, are, are the, the knowledge of the body is almost always seen as secondary or or um, inferior to the knowledge of the mind. I mean, that's why when you look at Hegel's version of the development of art history, it goes from the symbolic, which is all like large physical objects that rely on And the haptic contact of the body, well, where's the romantic at the end of the line? It's all, you know, painting and then more cerebral, optical and so on. So that division of mind and body then gets mapped onto the artist versus the broader public who are seen as more driven by their bodily knowledge and so on. And Adorno picks this up. I mean, uh, the Aesthetic Theories uh, and Minimum Morality. a lot of the other books are full of these references to the masses driven. They they can't engage in desublimation. They're all driven by their, their grits, kind of egos. There's no ego control there, and so on and so forth. So that division, that, that hierarchy gets carried over into art in various ways at various points, which becomes, uh, you know, it becomes the rationale for explaining why revolutions keep failing. So, oh, we had 1789, but then Hegel says 1789, French Revolution, failed because the masses were driven by their barbaric desire to r- realize the absolute prematurely. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, Paris Commune failed, Lenin says, because the Communards were naively trying to build alternative social, non-hierarchical social structures in occupied Paris instead of doing the hard work of repelling the Prussian army plus the national, French national army and so on. The masses are always failing. They're always not thinking critically. They're always not, like in this argument, right? They're always defined by their incapacity. And then that just gets carried right through the, in a way, the Russian revolution after the Russian revolution, which is, the whole point of which was supposed to be the Russian people to have autonomy and rule them, have their own elected leaders. And Lenin's very resistant to uh, democracy because he says after the Civil War, the proletariat's been declassed. That means they've lost class consciousness. That's what that means. It means that they can't rule themselves yet. They're not ready for freedom yet again. And the masses are perennially disappointing leftist intellectuals. Not for it. No, so what, what has to happen? A caretaker institution called the party has to rule in their stead. This kind of paternalistic notion of the party and so on. And, and uh and so so that that notion that revolution keeps failing because of the failure of the poor, or the working class, whatever signifier that gets used at different points carries right through. It's a you know, Adorno's argument, uh you know, you see that shift in Adorno's work between the early Frankfurt School, early 1930s. Uh, oh, the Frankfurt School is going to be a, a creative and intellectual resource for the German working class as they fight the fascists, to dialectical enlightenment, early uh, mid 1940s. Like, forget about it, the working class is kind of a lost cause. I and mean, so, uh, a critical theory has now taken on, it's a vessel that carries that revolutionary consciousness that the working class keeps failing to exhibit. And it's like, as he says in this interview with Horkheimer, a message in a bottle. There's no interlocutor to receive that message. That's what uh, Susan Bakhorst calls Marx without the proletariat, right? So there's no revolutionary agent. So revolutionary consciousness has to be Displaced into some other form. It's like a currency. It's going to be translated into revolutionary theory, or critical theory, or Ava or you know Samuel Beckett's plays, or Schoenberg's you know twelve tone compositions, or something is going to be, and it's the something is usually bourgeois art or bourgeois intellectuals, which is you know the totality of most of the avant garde and the vanguard. So they hold that revolutionary consciousness because the masses driven by their bodily appetites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are not quite ready in the hopes that one day the historical conditions will evolve sufficiently, that that revolutionary truth that's being held in protective stasis can be broken open and, what, redistributed to them on the streets to put into practice. I don't know what the end game actually is meant to be, but that's kind of the implication. It's like Adorno says... uh, 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 art is uh, an advance on practice that has not yet begun, so that's where praxis and the- and 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 uh, and theory or art get divined. That's the prematurity of praxis. So the argument I make in the book is that that's the exact same schema that you see that comes out of the Enlightenment. It's different because in the avant-garde, the goal of the schema of aesthetic experience is to engage in a kind of a. Uh, Disruption of the viewers, bourgeois viewers' desire for transcendence, whereas in the Enlightenment you're supposed to have an experience of beauty that gives you transcendence. You get to ignore your class specificity and imagine you're one with the, all of humanity. You know the avant-garde reception discourse just inverts that, but again the social architecture is almost identical. So that's you know in, in a quick way that's how I think it migrates through into the twentieth century.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because that's also explained why when I was reading the book, I was very much struck with this idea that perhaps there is not much distinction uh, between modernist and avant-garde as usually being claimed. Uh, just going back to Adorno, uh, you also mentioned about Adorno's and Adorno's uh, understanding of autonomy. I think one of perhaps the, you know, most articulated notions very much still today, you, you can see, uh, it's still around, uh, and very much influential in, specifically because he's also critic of, uh, cultural industry and so forth and connecting to, uh, autonomy, uh, and, interestingly in the book also you bring this in, uh, into the context of adorno's response to the student movement in the 60s that those, those parts are very interesting like uh how he's reacting and uh so forth um uh, so again it seems that a this kind of a disconnection here also about what's going on uh at the time and this adorno's uh, uh kind of uh reservation uh so what, what do you think about the significance of Adorno in terms of,
2: like, uh, re- repacking this idea of autonomy? And- yeah, I mean, um, I think I mentioned earlier, early on, that there's re- there's been a real revival of interest in Adorno in the last decade. You know, John Roberts uh, has a book out called Revolutionary Time and the Avant-Garde, which is a super interesting book. That it, you know, basically makes the argument that we need an Adorno for today. Because And usually these arguments hinge on a similar... Presentation that for me is a little hyperbolic that the market is so pervasive and overwhelming, there's no space outside the market, just except in a way we have to accept it. I'm going to say that's what John Roberts says, but you see that, and like you mentioned, uh, Nicholas Brown has this he has a version of that same argument, Hal Foster makes that argument, Ranciere makes a version of that argument. So we just have to give up on this idea that there's an out in a way an outside from which you could get outside the institutional art world to critique anything other than the institutional art world. That's the limit of critique, is you critique the institutional art world and we move on our merry way, preserving revolutionary consciousness for a St. Petersburg moment down the road at some point, we don't know when. Uh, Adorno is, um, I mean, I can uh, certainly understand the appeal because he's an amazing writer. uh, and, And there's so much to be learned from his critiques of mass culture and popular culture. But he's also, for me, there's a fatalism there. There's a throwing up of one's hands, and yes, you could look at the 1960s situation um, and say, uh, and I can look at it and say, you know, in a way, he was right. If your, if your imaginary of political change is another Bolshevik revolution, it's true that didn't happen. So. Yeah, if I accept that that this catastrophic millenarian model of political, the only one that counts is this scorched earth completely overthrowing everything that came before and starting from scratch, it's true. You know, okay, he was right. That did not come out of the 1960s in the way that he had, you know, so he predicted that correctly. But then for me, I have to go back and say, well, I don't know that I entirely agree with that as a model of political change. Uh, You know, and and I mentioned this in the book, but I don't think that's really even what happened in Russia, to be honest. Uh, You know, the the Russian Revolution was a gradual, incremental process that unfolded over decades before the explosion in St. Petersburg, which Lenin had almost nothing to do with. So, um, I part of my interest in in this question is an interest in what does the what does I ask my students this when I have seminars on act engaged charts says, What is your model of meaningful political change? Because so much of autonomy hinges on this as an a priori. Well, I don't really think anything can change. Okay, nothing can change. Then what is there left to do? Anything I try to do outside the institutional world will be instantly co-opted. And, and in fact, will be even worse than doing nothing because it will somehow be used to excuse the ongoing domination of the capitalist system. Well, the best I can hope for is to work within the conduit, within the network of bourgeois cultural institutions, the art world. Uh, Nicholas Brown has this whole argument about genre in film, right? So a uh, for me, kind of peculiar argument to James Cameron's uh, Terminator is a critical anti-capitalist work, whereas Avatar is not because Terminator is more engaged with a self-reflexive critique of the genre of time-traveling films, which is, I w- would agree with it. I just don't argue, I wouldn't maybe agree with the idea that it's a signifier of revolutionary consciousness of any kind, right? It's an interesting film and maybe subliminally, I'd say in small little ways, it changes somebody's awareness to have watched Terminator, but for me, it's not a, but but see that's we're all the way back to the harmony of the faculties. We're the, we're back to the play drive. Internal, uh, ostensibly imminent points of conflict or, or or resistance against norms within the the genre of a particular art practice stand in place for actual forms of resistance in the world. So they have this this syntagmatic function. Well, okay, and it's like Hal Foster with the institutional critique. Well, by critiquing you can't, you know, critique the political in the, in the outside world, but you can critique the institutional art world. And so by acting out uh, this critique against artistic norms or institutional norms, that's the best we can hope for. And look, there's nothing wrong with that kind of work. I, I there's a lot of institutional critique stuff that I really enjoy. the The problem that I have is. So often what comes out of that analysis is not simply to say, hey, if you're going to work in the institutional art world, here's a cool way to do it. It's the corollary, which is that, in fact, this is the only place in which criticality can be produced. And any practice that is not being developed in that context will fail. And that's that apophatic orientation, that kind of, I can only make it good art by pointing to something else that it's not like and it has to fail. And that, for me, bespeaks a lack of imagination about the nature of the political, especially in this day and age. And for me, that's kind of an essential a central issue. Not so much the claims of it. Look, I, I get why people are, are art historians really enjoy spending a lot of time writing about how radical artworks in the Venice Biennale are. I get it. I mean, it's understand it. We all tell our stories as historians and theorists that's not a story that I tell. I, I can't prove that the work I write about is more political than the work you write about. I don't have a judgment about that. That's just what we do. We tell stories about these these practices and the, to the best of our ability and construct an argument around that story. Uh, but I, I don't find it convincing to then say, but everything everybody else is doing fails because they're not their political sensibility isn't advanced enough, or they're naively reformist. Because for me, there are just as many points of complicity working in the art world as there are working in the world of the social movements or political movements. They're just different points of complicity and compromise. So, Yeah, this is a great point, actually. Uh, uh, That's my question
1: to you. Uh, You you pointed out interesting problems here. It's also the shifting the unions to moving to the, you know, to the campuses and universities. And it seems that the disruptions happen moving more and more to the, you know, the campuses and the, and of course the production, right? The, uh, the one part production that these campuses are the theories, of course, is part of that practice. And it seems that, I don't know how much do you think that's also part of like perhaps the history of left.
2: Well, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, look at the Mexico City in 1968. That was, you know, middle-class university students in Mexico City that led the protests that were ruthlessly put down. There's a long history within middle-class culture and cultural institutions of really important forms of resistance. May 68 in Paris is primarily lower-middle-class university students that were frustrated they couldn't get positions in universities because they were all over-enrolled and they wanted a better life. They weren't necessarily trying to have a Bolshevik revolution. They just wanted to have an education and get a job. So there, that can go many different ways. So um, I would say that what's in, what comes out of, say, that, and you mentioned Adorno in this interstitial moment of the 60s and into the 70s, is a changing notion of what revolution looks like now you can argue well it's all reformist okay fine it's all reformist but then you also have to have a paradigm of what the end game of your revolutionary or political version of change is but what you see shifting in the 60s and the 70s happens on both the side of artistic practice and in social movements you find social movements that are becoming much more attentive to uh the role of culture uh, cultural production uh, a symbolic production. Think of the Black Panthers are a good example of that. They were super aware of self-fashioning, the, these performative gestures. There's a famous protest where they go to the California capital in Sacramento to protest the change in gun laws. It was directed at the Panther Party. Um, the style of dress, you see this in uh, brown berets, uh, uh, the American Indian movement occupying Alcatraz, a performative dimension to these, social, these new social movements on the one hand. And then on the other side artistic practice, you see artists opening up their practice to elements within social movements, consciousness raising, which is central to feminism, gets taken up by a figure like Suzanne Lacy, and is, she effectively stages consciousness raising as an artistic practice, but in a way that is actually in some cases operational She'll develop projects that have real connections to policymakers and so on. So there's a, there's a breaking. I just want to say there's a breaking down of some of these aut- autonomous silos between theory and practice, art and political change, and so on. That comes out of this period. This is widely studied in uh, by historians of new social movements. Now, one argument is all the new social movements are naively reformist and predicated on you know naive ideas of identity politics and so on, they're not revolutionary and they never will be, that sort of thing. But for myself, I would argue that they are the seedbed of any kind of future politics has to begin with the individual, the individual body, the individual consciousness, and and the forms of experience. That political change is not simply practical and pragmatic to be governed by some kind of a priori theory kind of a rectitude of a particular revolutionary theory, but that genuine insight comes out of the act of resistance. Creativity comes out of the act of resistance. We talked about the situation in Iran. That's exactly what you see happening. These improvisational gestures on the street. Real Talk about risk-taking performance. Forget about Chris Burden shooting himself in the arm. Like try knocking a turban off in the streets of Iran for a 60-year-old girl, right? That's that her full development is a feature of many social movements over the last 30 years. And for me, those are genuinely creative uh, 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 moments of insight. Now, do do any one of them lead to a world revolution? Not any one of them, but my hope, this is my naivete, I guess, my hope is that the aggregation of these practices over time, uh, hopefully gradually forming connections in ways that's the best hope for me of meaningful political change. It's pretty bleak right now because we have neo-authoritarian movements all over the freaking globe, right? It feels quite hopeless. But I, I don't feel like the only solution is to go do institutional critique in, uh, you know, documenta. I think that there are significant... It, and so I would challenge the assumption that these practices don't, aren't creative that they're not artistic that they're not aesthetic because the aesthetic this is always to me that oddness is claiming that there's a difference between the aesthetic and the ethical the aesthetic basically claims to be the single engine of human emancipation how can that not be an ethical claim it just does it in a different way right so for me for my allegiances my experience and and so on i find those the that's a compelling direction for contemporary art practice does it mean everybody should get out of galleries? I know plenty of colleagues that do amazing work in galleries, that's fantastic. As I said before, the problem is this argument that it is only that work that possesses a, political, a creative political insight. That it is only that work that preserves meaningful critical consciousness, the avant-garde and the avant-garde alone, as John Roberts will argue in his book. That's the part that I would disagree with that. But to me, that's that binary again. And and it, so it involves necessarily a kind of a, a crude for me a crude interpretation of existing forms of social change, and I refute that logically no because I can point to any I can point to the Arab Spring and say well look what happened out of that oh it was this is reformist the black uh, all lives matter black lives matter all lives matter black lives matter movement what really changed people, uh, black people are still being killed by cops with impunity and so on you can easily have that mindset. And to me, that's kind of an Adorno mindset, right? And, and this is, Lukács has this quote about Adorno in the Grand Hotel Abyss, right? I love that. Sitting in his chair, you know, in, in LA, an exile from, you know, in LA, so he doesn't, right? And just getting his pronouncements about the the, the degritude of the word. Yeah, I get that. I'm, I can totally be like that. I can look around and just impute everything. For me, I, I just find that eventually a, a kind of an empty position to take up. I don't find it as compelling as the, the the more hopeful outlook that I try to have in my work. Yeah, something is interesting,
1: as you mentioned, about this alternative paradigm, this, you know, the performative mode of action. But, at, to, to to the extent that I understand, very much they use, I mean, these are per- performative pieces. Indeed, I mean, these... If we can call art or not it's i'm not going into that that's it. <laughs> but but the thing is it seems that there is a space opening because of the social movement is happening so that that's based on that you know ground then you can see these performative. they justify itself uh without like uh without uh uh institutional right uh
2: support here um so let me see. Let me say to that: uh, there are many gray zones. There's practices that are somewhat in the. It's not a black and white thing at all. There's practices that are partially in the art world and 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 partially not in the art world, and so on. And the second thing is, are, what I've heard for twenty and thirty years: why do you need to call it art? And so that's, in part, that's in a way why I wrote the book, in, in a sense, to say, well, there's actually a 200-year genealogy of why to call it art, and this is, this is what it is. Now, it's art in a different way than you're used to thinking of art, but you don't own the copyright to art, whoever the theorist might be. Here's the thing I observed. Most of the people doing the projects I write about were artists. They might be artists working with activists or sociologists or whatever, but they said this work is part of my artistic... Uh, or to Patrice Couleur the one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. I did an interview uh, with her in, uh, for field and she's a performance artist. And I said to her, I said, you know, what's the correlation? She said that there it's a continuum. So this is the dialogical hybridity. Of course, in these moments of intense social change, I feel like those Silos start to break down a little bit, and you start to see this. This gray zone that freaks people out. We're well, not allowed to call that art. It's this or it's that or it's socialist realism. And I feel like it's not just socialist realism. We've there's a different paradigm in which prefigurative experience, creative experience, and so on mean a really meaningful in the act of resistance. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But no, I think the, uh, your point
1: is very much. Uh responding to my question, because I was thinking like, yeah, most of it seems that there's in uh, this, you know, great moment of social uh, agitation. But as you mentioned, this is more complex. it you see this kind of gray zone, as you mentioned, I was thinking about this, some of these examples and yeah. Um, and I'm hopeful in, in also in your, in, in this book, you you mentioned a couple of examples. Uh, I think you mentioned Uh, Teller, the Graffite Popular uh, uh, and the Theatre of Working Class and and other, some of these other examples about uh, the arts from decolonization. Uh, But in the the next works we will discuss, I think we can discuss more of these, uh, some of these examples. Um, Yeah, I think maybe, you know, uh, to also discuss one of the examples of connection between institution and the social context. Uh, you have a chapter on Hirschhorn's Gramsci monument. Maybe, maybe we can discuss because that might be a good study case uh, to uh, to try some of these, you know, uh, notions and how he navigates. Because he, I mean, the the, the chapter strikes me with the ways in which it's laid out, the uh, the way that Hirschhorn uh, deal with, I mean, un- anticipated some of his critiques and also he, but it's very much how he navigate this. Uh, maybe you can tell us more about this. I uh, also, that might be interesting also to think about the alternative paradigm because there, there is some, uh, you know, sim- symptomatic aspect of this work that can help also the, uh, understanding the alternative as well.
2: Of course. Yeah. I, I, um, Yeah, I I wrote about that work in in depth, well, one, because my, uh, just uh, over time, the practice that I've developed as a historian or a critic is just, you know, to spend time with a project and to try to think it through and really ruminate on it. And I thought it lent itself in its complexity to a really deeper understanding, you know what you tended to see were all these laudatory articles in the New Yorker and things about, oh, I went to the Gramsci Monument and there were young uh, kids, public housing kids, playing in the fountains with art world types. And it was it's literally the Census commutis. It's literally Schiller's fantasy of, of the classes, people uh, c- combining, um, living together in peace and joy across boundaries of racial and class difference. And so that was super, that's what fueled a lot of the publicity, right? And, but for that to not seem naively problematic, it required Hirshhorn to really uh, fabricate an extremely complex, discursive armature of staging the work. And that's what fascinated me, is performative self-fashioning of his work as an artist. And And the fact that, um, uh, It's based on the work of um, Antonio Gramsci was super interesting because Gramsci's so much of what Gramsci's theory is precisely about the potential of uh, what he called the subaltern, right, the 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 oppressed, the poor, the working class in various contexts, to to be able to develop their own counter hegemonic strategies. And so I, I felt it was quite odd to have this almost like reliquary of Gramsci's personal effects, like here's his slippers and stuff and have some academics come and read about hegemony and think that that meant that signified some sort of meaningful communication of revolutionary theory that like it's a complete absence of mediation. You know, I talks about mediation. I want to talk about it too and say, where's the mediation? Where was the point at which you said, if you really want to take Gramsci seriously, you go to the site and, and instead of finding a site that would accept a white European guy to come in and, and create all this stuff, find a site where you feel that there is a connection to resistance, that you feel that there is a potential, a history of resistance or, or action that your work can contribute to in some way. And there might have been one in this site, but I don't believe that's what he was after because he has to have plausible deniability. Uh, You know, like Buchlo says, oh, the art world people could come and go, how tragic that yet again, revolutionary theory was not able to make common cause with the masses in this housing project. Yes, because he made zero effort to actually do that. That was not his goal. His goal was to extract signifiers of what he called street credibility that could then be and this sounds very cynical so this is my cynical side talking but basically monetized because if you look at the auction market for shorn's work these things that he makes these little constructions and sculptures and so on that come out of these public projects are extremely valuable i'm not saying he's doing it to make money per se but i'm saying that there is a it's like an iceberg there's underneath is a huge apparatus of selling and buying and reselling art objects in the art world that the ultimate destination. The reason why, when the resident said to him, gosh, it's gone and it's never coming back, and he's like, yes, it was a time-limited thing. And I'm glad you enjoyed it, but see ya. I've got to go off to another city that's going to pay me to do the same thing all over again. The reason he can in a way say that is because he presents himself as an autonomous artist. I'm not here to help you. If you want to help me, you can. By the way, I have access to a half-million-dollar budget. It could provide jobs for unemployed people, but I'm not here to help you. We're just making art together. I found that profoundly disingenuous in certain ways. Uh, And so the fact that that project would then get embraced by, for example, October magazine, which is the kind of the bellwether uh, publication for this uh, avant-garde paradigm or neo-avant-garde paradigm is uh, fascinating to me because they have literally spent decades uh, criticizing community art practices in various forms, right? All the way back to Douglas Crimp in 1987, I remember when this happened, he did this AIDS the demogra- AIDS issue of October and it was incredibly success, probably the most successful issue ever. and they were shot and he eventually was, as he describes it in interviews or described it, um, he was driven out of October. Because they, were, they did not want that. It goes all the way back to their founding editorial. Everything that's outside the institutional art world is socialist realism. And art begins and ends with a recognition of its conventions. That's in their founding editorial. So that's our, that's our algorithm right there. Imminent resistance against some kind of internal norm. And so for Ershhorn to sell his work for the Assamzammadi, he has to act that out except in this case, the norm is pushing off against our naive versions of community art or the institutional art world being thrown into relief by the presence of this vibrant working-class housing development. And those Kant cont- or, or Gramsci's theory and the failure of theory to produce revolutionary change, those conceptual oppositions are what are being presented in a way to an art world audience that is prepared to savor them but the actual people get left as a kind of a symbolic resource. And again as i say, you know, i'm sure I, from their interviews i've read for a lot of people that was a residents it was a rewarding experience. I don't want to say it was like oh it was a, entirely exploitative and so on. But i still found the methodology really problematic. For me it's kind of an in, it's kind of a, a, a an point paradigm for what happens to the neo avant-garde uh, paradigm of the aesthetic, which constantly requires new material to push off against. But what happened is institutional critique, it became evident that institutional critique was running out of juice. And so you had to you couldn't keep doing performances about how corrupt the museum or the gallery is. So you have to get outside, you have to out and do out kind of offshore sourcing for often signifiers of authenticity, to, to employ, to push off against the institutional arm, to reveal the corruption of the institutional arm world, whatever the paradigm might be. And so he's kind of forced out of the gallery into these space, not forced literally, but he chooses to, because I think he has an intuition that you need to draw on this constant supply of material to engage with and to act out this kind of symbolic resistance. And so that's what happens. And that cannot help but be uh, instrumentalizing you know, for the people in the housing development, he talks about this in his his notes. He talks about I've got to find something with street cred, and there's that that very poignant uh, description from a blogger about being at the Gramsci monument, and he's talking to uh, some people about how the New York Police Department came to tell them they had to shut things down, and how he stood up to them and, you know told them, No, I'm not. I'm an artist. I'm not going to do that. And the person said it was almost as if he was saying, that he was implying that if only the people in this forced houses, uh, housing development had that same bravura, that they would be more able to fight back against the forces of uh, police violence, which are quite profound in, in, in this neighborhood, in this area of New York City. And so there were a number of, for me, a number of, uh, I think, things that I was res- I recognized that seemed, as you said, symptomatic of this paradigm that I've been sketching out. And I thought, especially because this project commanded so much attention, uh, really uh, launched uh, or dramatically extended the careers of a number of curators and was widely covered with very little negative coverage. I thought there's something at work here uh, whereby all of these figures who've spent so much time developing a notion of the avant-garde that precisely excludes Things like kids doing workshops and uh, having a community radio station. These are exactly the abject forms of community art that advanced art is defined against. How is he going to square that circle? And so I was fascinated, really, in a way to unpack that a little bit, to reveal, hopefully for me, at least some of the underpinnings of that discursive structure. So that was the you know, I'm not trying to be... uh, uh, super negative about his work. He, I'm sure for many people, it's valuable and so on. But for me, it, was, it really was more symptomatic in that sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember this is, there is a one uh, footage in the interview he gave at Art 21. And I mean, the, the image still in my mind is just stuck with me. He, he was scolding people uh, for not participating. And to me, it was like, Exactly. This is like a gig economy. Like you should participate. There's no way. Like
2: it's like, it's, it's just like, you know, uh... it, it is. I know it's a, that there's that incident with the song that people don't want to work anymore. And he's like, I them And they say that you don't love anything but your, but your art. And he says, that's true. And they all laugh. Well, I don't know if they all laugh necessarily, but that's what it's reported. Like they're supposed to learn from him how to be a possessive individualistic artist or, or something like that. That kind of became this, that's why I call it the Hirschhorn monument. I feel like so much of it was about him, his personality as a model or a paradigm for that, especially the young people in that housing development to, to embrace or, or whatever. And I I thought that was, you know, intensely, um, for me, intensely problematic in a number of ways. But yeah, uh, uh, I know it's uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting and and uh, uh, revealing project in a lot of ways, and and for me, it's like it gets into the zone of the kind of practices that I've written about, and so it's a for me a nice jumping off or segue between the first and the second books because I end on like oh here's the limit condition of what an avant garde paradigm can do in that world, bringing along with it all the apparatus of I am an I am an uh, uh, I did have unshared authorship I am a you know, he, Hirshhorn begins in the Atelier Populaire, which is a post-May 68 graphic, it's a May 68 graphic studio that did street posters, uh, protest street posters. And he leaves precisely because, as he says, he he feels like it's his his individual freedom was being impinged on too much by the demands of, of, the, uh, of, of this at, more activist-oriented group. So from the earliest stages, he's been, I think, trying to grapple with artistic autonomy in, in that man. That's why it's so interesting is the project though.
1: Yeah, it is. I think, yeah, that's, that was very also helpful to see how the, the, these ideas, artistic autonomy still played out in this problematic way, uh, perhaps. Um, yeah, maybe we, we can uh, wrap up here. Uh, I want to thank you uh, Grant for taking your time that was a great conversation, and I think that's all also useful for me and the audience. Uh, thank you very much.
2: Great, it was my pleasure, and thanks again for the invitation. Merci. So, uh, to to our
1: listeners, we hope to have a following conversation after these interviews on the second volume beyond the sovereign self, aesthetic autonomy from the avant-garde to social engaged art. Please stay tuned.